0: Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. We are in the book of Isaiah this morning. That is the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, but we'll be looking at that in, in, in just a moment. We're going to be resting here in Isaiah, mostly in Isaiah 64. Also, we're going to go to Isaiah 6 this morning as well. Um, and we're going to beginning, be beginning a series on the subject of revival, about four weeks in October on the subject of revival. How many of you would agree that we could use more, from, uh, more of God and less of us? Right, Um, We need more of God every day and less of us. John the Baptist said this, um, that he must increase, speaking of Jesus Christ, and we must decrease. Revival is one of those things that we talk about sometimes, but we often talk about it and have different ideas or different pictures that, that kind of get up in our, in our mind. The word revival, it invokes these different ideas, these images or memories for each person in the room. When I say revival, how many of you know what I'm talking about, right? All right, now if we were to go around the room, many of you might have a different explanation for what revival is. It might be a definition or it might be an experience or it might be something that you have seen take place in your own life. For some people, revival conjures up the memory of a, of a tent with sawdust on the floor and services that went long into the night and the only thing you could hear at the end of the service was, was the sobbing of the saints and the crickets that are chirping around the tent at night. Um, some of you might remember revival as memories of night after night of going to church, sometimes for an entire week, and then sometimes the preacher would stand up and say, You know, we, I don't think it's over. Or they'll go into another night of the week as, as well. And for me as a kid, that meant no baseball practice this week, right? A lot of times. For others, it conjures up memories of when you trusted Christ or when you got saved. Um, or when you got serious about your relationship with God. So that revival wasn't necessarily around a place or a function. It was around a moment that took place in your heart. And for some, it may cause you to picture or to conjure up ideas of Jonathan Edwards or Billy Graham or the great revival preachers of the great awakening awakening in our nation's history or figures like Billy Sunday or Mordecai Ham or some of those. See, today, some people think, though, that revival is a word or an idea that's in danger of extinction. All right, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a long time since a great move of God took place on a widespread level in our country. And the question is, if that's not taking place, who's to blame? Is it the churches who don't schedule revival meetings or don't put up tents anymore because it doesn't seem as comfortable because everybody's gotten so used to air conditioning and we've become soft or allergic to sawdust or something like that. Who's to blame that we don't see great moves of God taking place right now here at this moment? So the question is just what is revival? When we talk about revival, we have to understand what is revival? Well, revival in its purest sense is when the glory of God comes down because the people of God begin to look up. Revival is when the glory of God comes down because the people of God finally decide to look up. Remember that story of Peter when he said, I want to walk on the water, when he saw Jesus out walking on the water, which by the way, is a display of God's glory. No one's been able to walk on the water but Jesus in history. And Peter said, I want to walk on the water too. And so he said, come out, come out to me. Keep your eyes on me. And what happened when Peter took his eyes off? He fell through the water. And Jesus rebuked him after picking him up out of the water and wiping some seaweed off of his face. And he looked at him and he said, oh you of little faith. And he rebuked him for not having enough faith. Revival is what takes place when God comes down and the spirit of God, the power of God, the presence of God comes down. Because people have finally decided to get their eyes off of themselves. Get their eyes off of their own agendas and their own stuff. And they begin to look up to God again. Revival can happen in a church. Revival can happen in a home. Revival can happen in a school. Revival can happen in a city, in a nation, and throughout the entire world. But let me tell you, this church, revival on that level will never happen if revival doesn't first take place in the heart. And that, no one has has a say over your heart except for you and God when you give it to him. See, revival again, and this is just, if you memorize this, this it's, it's, it's powerful. Revival is when the glory of God falls, when people look up. And it manifests itself in different ways and for different seasons, but the cause effect is always the same. God's people got right with him, and God displays his power through the people who got right. That's what happens when revival shows up. When we get right with God, God does, God does amazing things through people who get right. So the question is, how do we make revival happen? Can we make revival happen? Is this something that we have a part in making happen? In 2014, I had the privilege to attend the Southern Baptist Convention's pastor conference when it took place in Baltimore. The whole focus of that pastor's convention was trying to encourage pastors and church leaders and churches, Sunday school teachers, deacons, nursery workers, volunteers, everyone, if you would just begin to pray for God's move again. If you would just begin to pray for God to work, for God to send his spirit. Again, it was saying, if we would all collectively look up, maybe God's spirit would one day fall again. And so they began to pray for to happen in our communities, in our churches, in our cities, our schools, our states, our nation, and our world. And then there was one mega church pastor in Atlanta who started a firestorm after that conference when he, who didn't attend it, tweeted out that there was a bunch of people in Baltimore wasting their time praying and seeking for revival. Because he said in his estimation, revival is not what we need anymore. What we need for a great move of God is just greater organization in our churches and greater leaders On our platforms. So, his idea of revival is if we could just organize it, if we could plan it, if we could program it, then we will see a great move of God. Then we'll see a great move of religion and faith throughout our cities and our communities. That's how it's accomplished. And so, it makes a lot of people wonder sometimes what does it really look like when God is alive and well in a church? Is it when the seats are full? Is it when the offering plates are full? Is it when the baptistries are full? Is it when the nurseries and the kids' ministries are full? All of those are wonderful things. And they're signs of vibrancy. But you can have all of those things and not have an ounce of God. Because we can market ourselves into success. But we can only humble ourselves into revival. Man, I like that. That wasn't even written down, man. That was good. Thank you, Lord. That was good. We can market ourselves into success, but we must humble ourselves into revival. Dude, somebody write that down, please. That was... Thank you, Lord. See, in this Laodicean age, this day when we're kind of lukewarm for Christ... In the midst of more resources than we've ever had before, more ability than we've ever had before, more talent, more technique than ever before, more education is at our fingertips than ever before. We have more means of effective communication than ever before. The church of Jesus Christ, unfortunately, is focused less on the kingdom of God than we ever have been before. Because we've settled for less of God and more of all that. The church, one pastor once said, the church is choking on all the things that it thinks that it thinks can enhance or replace God. We're choking on all of those things that we think that can enhance or replace God. And the only thing that sets the church distinct is the presence of God going with us. See, so we can have great music, but somebody else is gonna have better. We can we can have great lighting and great production, but we can't beat Broadway. We can have all kinds of those things to try to make Jesus more attractive. But folks, the only thing that makes Jesus the most attractive is that he provides what no one else can. And that is hope and peace and eternal life. So the question is, is revival possible? Yes. Can we make it happen? No. But can we humble ourselves to be prepared for it? Absolutely. And do we need to know where, we, where to go for revival? Yes. We can't find revival anywhere else but at the feet of an almighty God. Revival is possible because God is not limited. Yes, we should pray for revival because prayer puts us in agreement with God. A funny thing happens when we begin to pray. We begin to think like God. We begin to lay things at his feet and say, God, do with it what you will. I have my plans. I have my idea of what you should do. But as we pray, God, your will be done. Jesus modeled that to us in the garden. When he prayed, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me that I wouldn't have to go to the cross. If you've got some other way for this plan of redemption to take place, I'd be happy to hear it out because I really don't wanna go to the cross. But he said, nevertheless, if it's your will, I'll do it. As Jesus prayed, he said, I humble myself because God's way was the only way we could be redeemed. We should pray for revival continually. We should pray for it individually. We should pray for it congregationally. We should pray for it desperately and humbly. We should pray for it in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own church, in our community, in our city, our state, in our nation, and the world. And if there are other lives on other planets, then we should pray for revival there too. Right? Pray for God to send revival. Why? Because that is what God's choice men in scripture did. That's what Isaiah did. He prayed for revival. And when he prayed for revival, God answered. Our text is found in Isaiah chapter 63 and 64. And it's this prayer that is recorded by the prophet Isaiah. In this prayer, Isaiah cries out to God in, concerted des- in concern to desperation for God to show up and send revival. Or to send his presence to his people. See guys, people had turned from worship. Just like in a Jeremiah last, last week. Guess what? If you wanted to be anything in the days of the Old Testament, you really didn't want to be a prophet. Okay? Because prophets, some prophets were given good messages. Right? Jonah was one of those guys. He was able to go and give good messages up until God said, listen, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them that I'm getting ready to destroy them." I don't know about you, but that's not one message I want to go deliver. Especially to Nineveh. Isaiah, Jeremiah last last week was given a message to deliver that God is going to send judgment upon you. Isaiah decides to pray at this moment, God, would you send your presence down? Here's Here's what Isaiah was thinking. God, if you would just show your power, no one could deny it. If you would just show what you're capable of doing, nobody would worship Baal anymore. Nobody would go out and worship Ashtoth. Nobody would go out and worship all of these other gods. If you would just show your power. Like you did when you split the Red Sea. Like you did when you, sent the Ten when you sent the Ten Plagues. Like you did when you wrote the Ten Commandments in the tablets and sent Moses down with his shiny face and all of that type of stuff. If you would just show your power on a consistent basis, then maybe your people would follow you consistently. But here's what God wants. God doesn't want our awe without our heart. See, a heart that is set on God follows God even when God is not necessarily doing the thunder and the lightning stuff all the time. Sometimes he chooses to work work with a still small voice and it's in that still small voice that we see God do amazing things. So we're going to look at this, but let's look at, let's look at uh, the background of Isaiah. Let's look at kind of contextually what's going on. Jerusalem right now is lying in ruins. What used to be God's house of worship, the temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins. The people, the city, the house of God no longer enjoyed the glory of God and it was showing. It was showing in their daily life. It was showing in their faith. It was showing in their worship. They worshiped with half faith, it seemed like. Because let me ask you this. How hard is it to worship God when things aren't going well? Becomes difficult, doesn't it? You begin to wonder, okay, God, are you still just as strong as you were when you did the impossible before? Can you do the impossible again? The answer we know up here is yes, but down here we have a hard time with that, don't we? So the background of Isaiah, Isaiah's name, God sends a man named Isaiah as a prophet. And here's what his name means. It means salvation of the Lord. God sends a prophet whose name means salvation comes from me. The theme of the entire book of Isaiah is deliverance. And we see it in five ways through the whole book. Judah is delivered from the Assyrian invasion in chapters 36 and 37. They're delivered from the Babylonian captivity in chapter 40. They're delivered from future deliverance of the Jews from the dispersion among the Gentiles. It's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11 and 12. Their deliverance of the lost sinners from judgment is prophesied through the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 53. And then there's a final deliverance of mankind from the bondage of sin when God's eternal kingdom is established. And this is the deliverance that we're looking at in our passage this morning. Because let's be honest, for the church in the United States of America in 2022, we're not really concerned about the. Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity anymore. What we're worried about is what's going on today. When will I see re- deliverance? When will I see deliverance from my pain? When will I get a good report at the doctor? When will I finally have more, more money than month? When will I see God work in a mighty way? When will my church begin to grow and to thrive? When will my job begin to get better? We want to see God move in those ways. Look at our text this morning. Isaiah chapter 63 beginning in verse number 15. Isaiah is praying to God. Again, God's man begging God, his boss, the one who gives him the message. Here's what he says. God, look down from heaven and see from your lofty home, holy and beautiful. Where is your zeal and your might? Your yearning and your compassion are withheld from me. This kind of holds up next to the psalmist. When the psalmist would pray and would say, Lord, where have you gone? There were other times when he praised God because he knew God was hearing him. But here we see Isaiah basically saying, I can't see evidence of your zeal. I can't see evidence of your excitement to show up for your people anymore. Your compassion is nowhere to be found. And in verse number 16, he says, yet you are our father. So we see the faith there in Isaiah's voice as he says, Lord, we don't see the evidence, but I still know you're there. I still know you're my father. Even though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't recognize us or is ignorant of us, you, Lord, are our father. Your name is our redeemer from ancient times. That you are the ancient of days. This is your name. This is your function. Why then, Lord, in verse number 17, do you make us stray from your ways? You harden our hearts so we do not fear you. Return because of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people had a possession for a little while, but our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those that you never ruled like those who did not bear your name. He says, basically, there's no difference between God's people and the pagans anymore because you're not working among us and you haven't been working among them. He says, we see no evidence, but I know, God, I know you're there. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like God? If it weren't for the fact that I know that I trusted you umpteen years ago or whenever it was, I wouldn't have any other evidence that you're there. Because it seems like my prayers are dry. My prayers aren't reaching the top, reaching beyond the ceiling. It feels like you're silent with me. But here's what Isaiah said in the midst of all of that. I know you're my father. Your name has not changed. You are still the redeemer from from the ancient days. You're still with me. Now look what he says in 64. If only you would tear the heavens open or rend the heavens or open the heavens or oh that you would do that. And that you would come down. Again, remember what revival is. Revival is when God comes down, when people begin to look up. That you would come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Just as the fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies. So that nations will tremble at your presence. What we see in verses 1 and 2 right here is a desperate cry for revival. A desperate cry for God to show up again. A desperate cry for God to display his glory. I don't know about you. But personally in my life I've been in a place there where I need to see that. Last week we had a rough meeting. A rough rough meeting about our future. Folks I want to encourage you with this text this morning and the rest of the month. That the God that came down and brought revival to Isaiah and to his people is the same God that we worship every Sunday. And here's what happens when God's people begin to look up. God has a free way to just come down. Do we make him do it? No. Do we get to schedule him? No. But we do get to prepare our hearts for his arrival. So this morning I want to look at three things... Because revival first starts with an invitation. Our hearts must be prepared. Our hearts must be open. We must pronounce an invitation. When you want someone to come over to your house, what do you normally do? You send an invitation, right? You text and say, hey, come over. Or if you're really formal, you send out invitations, right? Listen, if we want a move of God, we've got to be willing to invite him. And that invitation sometimes is very uncomfortable, because when you invite the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-wise God to look at your situation, he's going to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when he does, sometimes what he finds, we may not be happy with. See, what happens is a lot of times we get, we get real high on our own horse where we're the only righteous ones and everybody else is just wrong, right? So revival is what everybody else needs. Revival is everybody else just catching up to where I already am, Right? You'll never see true revival if that's your idea of it. Are there things that need to be fixed? Absolutely. But first and foremost, the only thing that we can actually truly fix is our own hearts towards God. So I want to look at three things that Isaiah asks God to do in this prayer as he invites him to do. First of all, a prayer for revival is an invitation to look down. An invitation for God to look down Look again at verse number 15. He says, look down from heaven and see from your lofty home that is holy and beautiful. Say, wow, pastor, how did you get that point? Because it's right there. Yeah, absolutely. It's right there. It's pretty simple, right? An invitation to revival is an invitation for God to look down. And a couple of things that this does is it notes that God is above us. When I say God, look down upon us. When I say, God, look down upon me, it notes that I'm beneath God. It's a position of humility. God is in a high and lofty position above us. How high and lofty is he? Well, over in Isaiah chapter 6, we get an idea of how high and lofty God really is. Look over in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. You'll see it on the screen as well. This is Isaiah again. He's given a vision of the throne room of heaven. And he says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, here's David's reaction, woe is me. Now how many of you, when you were looking at that, you were saying, man, this is awesome. I guarantee you that picturing in your mind, you're like, man, this is awesome. God is powerful. But when you see it before your face, it's a different story altogether. Here's Here's Isaiah's reaction, woe is me, oh boy. Woe is me before I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Now notice what he says, notice what he says first, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips before he says I live among people of unclean lips. What we often do is the reverse, right? We want to notice everybody else's sin before we get around to our own. But when you're in the presence of God, you can't think of anything but your unholiness in the presence of his holiness. And then he says, then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand he was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth and with it and said, now, this, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah sitting there and he's like, here I am, send me. Because he's like, I've got to tell people about this. I've got to tell people about this high and lofty God. He finally found in the lofty presence of God, he found his life's purpose and that was to tell everyone about this high and lofty God. This passage notes some of the characteristics of God's holiness, that he's high and lifted up, that he's higher than anyone in the room, more important that he is the most holy one in the room. He's the centerpiece. And church, I want to ask you this question. Are we absolutely sure that Jesus is the centerpiece in the room when we gather to worship? Is he the centerpiece in our hearts? Is he the object of my worship? Is he the focus of our worship? Is he the most important one in this room today? That if I get nothing I want as long as, Lord, you got the glory that was due to you, it's been a good day in your house. Is he high and lifted up? Is he seated on his throne? Is this about the power that he possesses? That there's no one that is more powerful than him. And let me ask you something, the battles that you face in your life today, do you truly and honestly see God as the most powerful source to combat that? Or is God what you go to later on? Is God what we go to to just fix the mistakes that we make trying to fix it ourselves? Normally that's what happens, but what if he was our first stop every time? How much trouble could we save ourselves from? You see the source of power in our singing, in our preaching, in our worship, or are we substituting something else like talent, like process, like machinations, like programs all for the and we're trading all of that in and not touching the power of God? Then we see that his train filled the temple, the robe of the king, it signified his majesty and his glory, and his glory was so great that it filled the entire place. Entire place. You ever seen those 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 royal weddings? Where sometimes, you know, the 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 princess the the, or the bride to be gets in the carriage and and the, the train is just so big on the dress that it like barely fits into the carriage and it's all like, you know. This is the picture that we get with the royalty of God, the power and the authority of God, that his train was so glorious that it filled the entire temple that Isaiah was seeing. Every inch of it boasted the authority of God. Is God the ultimate authority? Is God the ultimate authority? Who decides if we're doing well? Who decides what success looks like? Who decides what the future of the church looks like? Do we or God or does God? And when God decides and maybe it looks the way we want it to or maybe it doesn't, does that keep us from praying the way we want? No, but as we pray, we pray in humility to what God is doing. See, it notes notes his high and lofty position. We do well to remember just who God is. We would do well to remember just what kind of God we serve, just how holy he is, how righteous, how lofty, how powerful, how much authority he possesses, how much ability he has, just how much he's done for us in the past, what he has promised to do for us in the future. We would do well to remember that we serve a God who cannot be matched. It notes his high and lofty position, but it also notes the position of us as his servant. Look what he says in verse number five of Isaiah six. He says, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah was desperate for a glorious move of God because he knew he had nothing good to offer in the face of such holiness. He knew that all the talent and all the ability that he had in his little prophet body was nothing compared to what the world truly needed. And that was a touch from this holy God. So we can't get a taste of God's glory and walk away without craving it again and again and again. The glory of God is far better than anything else this world has to offer. It's even better than Lay's potato chips remember what Lay said bet you can't eat just one you're always coming back for another one and doggone it they're right they released this new flavor called lime son don't do it to just don't do it to yourself we had a family size bag on Monday on Tuesday we had crumbs in that family size bag because you can't eat just one of those this is the Lord once you get a taste of his glory and some of you are looking at me like lime chips just try it before you get mad all right or get saved. I don't know which we ever want. So, see, now you've thrown me off. All right. This is God's glory. When we get a taste of his glory, when we see God move in a mighty way, we want it again and again and again and again. We want that again because there's something in our souls that says this is a taste of what heaven is going to be like. This is what it was supposed to be like before the fall. This is what it was supposed to be like before sin got in the way. That's why we crave it so much. Not the chips, but Jesus. Because when you have face to face with just a glimmer of his glory, you can't live without it. You find yourself being consumed by it. You feel helpless without it. Isaiah knew that there was no one who could move but God. In Isaiah chapter 63 verse 16 of our text, he says, you are the father even though Abraham... And Israel doesn't recognize us. You, the Lord, are our father. Your name is our redeemer from ancient times. What he means by this is, when he says Abraham doesn't know us, what he means is Abraham is dead. He was one of our patriarchs, but he's dead. He can't do anything for us right now. When he says Israel, he's talking about Jacob, one of the other patriarchs. He says, Jacob had been one of our patriarchs at one point, but he doesn't know anything about what's going on unless you've given him word about it in heaven because he's not you. He said, but you... You're not our patriarch. You're our creator. You're our God. You're our life sustainer. You're our redeemer. You are our help from ages past. You are here. And while Israel had many patriarchs, God is the only heavenly father. He's the only holy one of Israel. And I love this. This is Isaiah's favorite name to use for God. He uses it 25 times in the book of Isaiah. It only shows up five other times in the whole Old Testament alone. When Isaiah describes God, he says, You are the holy one of Israel. What does this mean for us? It means that revival is not merely a return to the old days or the glory days or a return to what, it, what used to happen before. Because as time marches on, God marches on with it as well. While we might be tempted to look back and say, we need a move like we had with Jonathan Edwards, or we need a move like we had with Billy Sunday or with Billy Graham or any other great preachers of the day, revival in God's move is dependent upon God and the people of that day looking up to him. He's the only one who revives his church. It also notes the state of our our, our spirituality. You see, we're separated from him. And the only way for us to get to God, notice that Isaiah doesn't say, hey God, let us come to you. What does Isaiah say? He said, God, look down from your lofty perch and come to me. Why does he say that? Because he can't get to God on his own. But God can come to us. It notes our spiritual deficiency that we are separated from God and we cannot get there on our own. So it is an invitation for God to look down on us. To look down on us and take note of us and hear our cry and see our situation. And then it is an invitation number two to come down. It's an invitation to look down but it's also an invitation to come down. Verse number one of 64 says, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. It's a desperate plea of somebody who's satisfied with its current state. How desperately does Isaiah want the presence of God? He is willing to see the heavens split wide open. He's willing to disrupt the skies so that the glory of God could be seen. I don't know about you, but we get really Sidetracked by weather, don't we? Right? A snowstorm's coming in. There's no bread or eggs or milk to be found. Everybody, when a snowstorm comes in, we gotta have our French toast. Got to, right? When we know that there's a hurricane on the horizon, we track it and we watch it. When we know, when we can see seismic shifts that may bring about an earthquake, why do we do that? Because we know we're powerless against the elements, we know that there is something that reminds us of our own weaknesses. When weather starts to fall, we, get, we, we are in trouble. Here Paul says, I want you to send a storm of your presence like we've never seen before. Why? Because he knows in the presence of God, that's exactly where we're supposed to be. It's an invitation for him to come down. It's often translated when he says, when he says if, you, if only or oh that you would. It's a Hebrew word, l-u-w translated in different emotional expressions or oh or if only or oh that it's a passionate and guttural cry it's one of primal desperation and need and desire it's I have no other hope but this oftentimes love is used as a form of regret like l, I shouldn't have eaten that much at Golden Corral or l, I I wish I hadn't spent that much when I went to the mall but here it's "L come Meet us because we're desperate. It also denotes this great desire or hope like it does here. Isaiah here is basically what it means is he's not making a passive request. When he says if only, he's not saying just Lord if you'd like to. He's saying God if you don't, I hate to see what's going to happen. We get the picture that Isaiah is on his knees, probably completely face down, prostrate in prayers. He rears back his head and he cries to the heavens from the core of his soul. Oh, or if only you would rend the heavens. If only you would tear the heavens and just come down to us. It's a realization that things aren't right. It's a realization that without the presence of God, what's life really worth? He's dissatisfied with the current state and he's desperate for the glory of God here's the question that I got when I was working on this message is when do I think the church will finally be ready to cry out to God with this much desperation? I don't mean our church, I mean the church, the body of Christ. When will the church return to a place where we are willing to cry out with that much desperation to God collectively? Because let's be honest, we can cry out to God, Lord, heal our land, Lord, fix my problems, Lord, do all this, but ultimately we'll get up and guess what we're gonna go do? We'll say, Lord, heal it, but we'll go and we'll start to heal it by fixing everybody's problems on Facebook. Right? Lord, if you would just unite us, if you would just bring peace, what are we gonna go do? We're gonna go fight with somebody in the comments section. When we leave it with God, we leave it with God. It's a plea for God's presence. When when was the last time that we came to church starving for a touch from God? By and large, we're not passionately desperate for him to show up. Maybe because we don't even know what it looks like. Or maybe it's been so long since we've seen it that we can't remember it completely. See, we want a faith where God fits our agenda rather than a faith that changes us and our desires to his. Don't we? That's what we want today. We want a faith that fits our agenda rather than God giving us his. This is why we have so many people today that are just trying to take the word of God and make sense of all the sin that they want to engage in and say, God's okay with that. The Bible didn't really say that. This is just a bunch of old white guys who sat around and said, listen, the word wasn't written. It wasn't written by the publishers. The word was written by God Almighty. See, it's a plea for God's presence Do you know that it's entirely possible to hold a worship service and God never show up to it? The Bible says that when two or three are gathered in Christ's name, then he's in the midst. Say, well, two or three are gathered. Uh Uh-huh. In what? In Christ's name. In Christ's name, he's in the midst. But I often wonder just why many of us are gathering today. Are we gathering because it's something to do? Are we gathering because it's something we have to do? Are we gathering because... Well, if I don't show up, who else will? Or are we gathering because we had an opportunity to worship our Savior? See, why would God need to fill the church with His Spirit when we're already full of ourselves? Did you catch that? Why would God need to fill His church with His Spirit if the church is already full of itself? So there's a difference between omnipresence and his manifest presence, you see. We say, but God's always omnipresent, so he's here too. Yes, he is here, but he doesn't have to send his spirit. He can be a bystander instead of an active participant in our worship. I don't know about you, worship is so much better when the Holy Spirit is an active participant. His manifest presence is when he is there and he is working and no one can deny that his fingerprints are all over the place. See, I want to see God do something so big in his church and through his church that there's no possible way that it can be described just by taking credit for ourselves. I want to walk away saying, that had nothing to do with us today. When he comes down, when God comes down, his presence comes with it. And in his holy presence, all unholiness will come to light. And that's what leads to the third thing. It's an invitation for God to look down, an invitation for God to come down. But when God comes down, he's going to shake down as well. When God comes down, he's going to shake down. See, when God comes down in his presence and his holiness is seen, the thing about his holiness is unholiness cannot exist in its presence. This is why Isaiah, in chapter 6, verse 5, when he saw the presence of God, he said, woe is me. He said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm surrounded by people of unclean lips and I have nothing to offer. And it wasn't until that angel took that coal and purified his lips that he said, here am I. I'm ready to serve you. When God comes down, he shakes things up and he shakes things down as well. God never leaves things the same way that he finds them. You ever notice that? Why do we fear hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes so much? Because they may blow in for just a moment, but what they leave in its wake lasts for, sometimes for a lifetime. When God comes down, when his power is on display, it leaves something in his wake. Hopefully, it lasts a lifetime. But God never leaves things the way that He finds them. It's an invitation, Lord, shake down your enemies. Look at our text, verses 18 and 19. He says, The sanctuary has been trodden down by adverse adversaries. And in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 2, He says, Make your name known to your adversaries. So He says, When God comes down, He's going to shake down the enemy. Right? Who's our enemy? Some of us, we have a lot of enemies. We have a lot of enemies. I didn't know until last night that South Carolina is a football enemy again. Up until then, I didn't think they were anything to worry about. Now, apparently, we do. We all have a great enemy that is against us. and he's, he, But here's the thing about this enemy that is such a formidable foe in our lives. He is no match for God Almighty. No match. No match whatsoever. So, guess who doesn't want the Spirit of God to show up? More than anybody. The Satan. And, and 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 the spirit of God can be present in worship, but also the spirit of the devil, the distractor, can be present in worship as well. And this is why the spirit of God being present and we inviting him in is so important because when he is present, Satan has to flee. He has to flee. When the light shows up, the darkness has to flee. So it's an invitation to shake down your enemies. Look at this language that he uses in chapter 64. If only you would tear the heavens open or rend the heavens. Just like God just split open the sky and come in. And he says, just as, and the mountains would quake at your presence. That the mountains would just tremble at the presence of God. And that water would boil and brush fires, all of these things. And does, does Isaiah want worldwide catastrophe? No, he's just using this, illiter- this, this imagery to show us just how strong God is. And how feeble the elements of earth and the world really are compared to his power. Also, how feeble the elements of those who oppose him are compared to him. So he says, I want you to shake down your enemies, but also to shake down the way of the world. Isaiah says the presence of the Lord would make the nations tremble. When God's free to work in and through his people and in his church, the world has no other choice but to take note and to reckon with God. You want to know why so many people are able to just look at church as an optional experience today? You want to know why so many people are able to look at church and say, it's toxic and it's damaging more than it is good today? It's because we haven't allowed God in church for a long time. When the Spirit of God is present, (laughs) it makes a difference. And sometimes we're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes we get scared and sometimes it seems foreign because it goes against all the things that we've just gotten used to or replaced God with. Shake down just the normal way things go. Jesus told Peter that the church possesses such power that the very gates of hell wouldn't even be able to stand if we charge against it. The world seems to be winning, and it looks like it's gaining every day. It looks like that there's little, there's less and less of of faith, and more and more of just. Moving away from God. It looks like that every time you turn on the TV, every time you hear it, we can sit and we can whine and we can cry and we can complain about how it seems like everything is changing and it's not like it used to be and people don't have their eyes on God like they used to be. But church, if we don't put our eyes and our heart on God, who's going to? Shake down the way things are. And then he says, verse, in the last part, he says, I want you to shake down the mountains. Isaiah says the presence of God would cause the mountains to flow down or literally to melt. When you stand before, how many of you ever stood before a mountain? Like stood at the foothill of a mountain and looked up? Okay. I've never been out further west much than like Texas. And I've only been there like in Houston, which is, there's no mountains around there. But I hear like out in the Rockies and then in other parts, when you look up at some of these mountains, they are just majestic. We're not talking Appalachian mountains. We're talking huge mountains. So when you look at them, you are dwarfed in size. And you realize, I am so insignificant. Here's what Isaiah says. When your presence shows up, God, the mountains are dwarfed. They melt down. You're so big. Your presence, your power is so big that it dwarfs what dwarfs us here. So let me ask you a question. What mountains are you standing in the face of right now in your life that you look at and you're thinking, I can't climb that on my own. But when you look above, when you look above the mountain, what do you see? You see God seated on his throne, high and lifted up. So I don't know what mountain it is you face. As a church right now, we face a mountain of financial difficulty right now. We're facing a mountain of some things that we'll talk about a little bit more next week. That seem to be like big and seemed to, to dwarf us and could cause us to dwarf our faith. But, but church, I want to encourage you, look above the mountain and see who's seated above that mountain. Who spoke that mountain into place. You may be looking at a mountain of cancer. Look above that mountain and see who stands above that mountain. You may be facing a mountain of a possible divorce. Look above that mountain and see the one who has his hands outstretched, willing to invade that situation for his glory. You be facing a mountain of possible unemployment coming up. Look above that mountain and see the power in the hand of God to provide, to guide, and to protect. His very presence will melt that mountain down to nothing. You may think you're up against it. You may think revival can't happen anymore. You may think that God's finished. Stop looking at the mountain and look at the one who sits above it. And let him move. As we bow our heads and as we close our eyes today, I want to ask you this question. I want to ask you two questions. If you are not a child of God, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want to ask you today, what is stopping you from that? What is keeping you from coming to Christ and placing your faith and your trust in Him and in Him alone? We've just looked at this prayer by the prophet of God who said, God, I know when you show up, nothing can stand in the way of what you want to do. So you may think, I've wandered too far. I've done too many things. God would never love me. No. That is a lie from the devil. And God loves you infinitely and intimately. And he wants to be your savior. Trust him today. If you are a child of God, this is the best time to fall on our knees and to call on him and say, Lord, just look down. Look, in, look, look down on us. Come down on us and shake down my heart. Get me right with you. Ask him to look down. And how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel exposed or uncomfortable? Knowing that God is searching your heart? It's the best thing for us. Ask him to come down. Remember that things will change when God shows up. When God comes down, things change. It messes up our little world. And ask him to shake us down, to melt the mountains that are in the way, melt the mountains that we fear so much and make us to fear him and to trust him again. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.